progress. One variant of this idea, Stalinism, was deeply rooted in the ideology of a mechanistic Marxism, which supposed that history evolved in a successive necessary and progressive stages toward human emancipation. As there is no such a thing as a direction of history, thinking in terms of progressive stages is a recipe to failure for many, uh, many because when one thinks in terms of progress, one is prone to blindness to disaster. The same is true of scalarism. Scalarism could be as erroneous as stagism. It operates in the same way the mystification of progress operates. By scalarism, I am referring to the idea that moving to some attributes of national states at a given wider scale, in this case at the European scale, is inherently a positive move. Of course, this doesn't mean that scale doesn't matter. Scale matters, and there are many potential advantages of increasing st uh, scale statehood in a wide range of issues, such as risk pooling in social protection systems, macro-environmental regulation, bargaining power in international relations, and specialization gains from larger markets. However, there are also some adverse effects from increased scale. For example, larger political scale could lead to losses in terms of institutional diversity of socioeconomic and political systems, resulting both in a less well-fitted system at the local level or a worse phylogenetic evolutionary path. However, as you already get it, uh, discussing the intrinsic benefits and flows of supranational integration in general is hardly sufficient to examine the merits of specific historical development of integration, such as the European one. Confusing scalarism with internationalism is profoundly misleading because integration processes, and disintegration, by the way, are not class neutral. As Emmanuel Wallerstein once recalled, it is possible for particular social groups to alter advantages by altering states' boundaries. That means that statehood rescaling mm -hmm. must be appreciated as a spatial dimension of broader socioeconomic and political processes. While far right are growing stronger, the political stakes in this theoretical discussion are huge for the European left. Mm -hmm. Indeed, left credibility on the continent has been seriously damaged by the misadventure of Syriza in Greece. As a result of its refusal to leave the euro, the so-called coalition of the radical left, <coughs> embarrassing, had to comply with the infamous memoranda and ongoing policies of austerity, privatization, and deregulation. The bottom line is that Syriza's rule changed nothing. Seven years after the first bailout, the pain of ordinary Greeks is only getting worse. The main cause of uh, this unfortunate outcome is that Tsipras government decided to stay in the Eurozone. This decision was definitively clarified in July 2015, in spite of a surprising huge victory of the OXY at the referendum. It had two main and equally erroneous motives. The first motive was basically bad economics, stating that it was worth staying in the Eurozone in order to protect the international value of the currency. Preventing an increase in import prices and financial stability was considered, wrongly in my view, 
but it's a long discussion, safer than enlarging the domestic market to local producers and allow for a reflection of the domestic economy through redenomination and devaluation of the currency and debt re restructuring. The second reason relates directly to the idea that I would like to challenge today. It contends that the euro is more than a simple currency. It's a promise of Europe embedded in a currency. The beverage is bitter, says this idea, but as long as you take it, you're still on track toward a deeper continental integration, which, if you are a true internationalist, is supposed to be a superior and intrinsically desirable goal. Period. To what extent the euro, and more broadly, European integration processes in the past decades, is a premise to a desirable deeper integration at the European, of European nations? To answer this question, you have to go back to two elementary uh, issues. First, how could we understand the European integration process? And second, what are the conditions of possibility of emancipatory politics in that context? My point will be that it is highly hazardous to conflate supranational market integration with internationalism. Because supranational market integration, per se, entails an ongoing drain on socio-economic democracy and on political rights, which, at the end of the day, do not prevent, but on the contrary, exacerbate nationalism. There is no doubt that European integration is a child of what Enzo Traverso called the European Civil War of 1914-1945. The other parent is the Cold War, with the gradual embracement by European elites of a US-led project of a global capitalism to contain rising communist influence. The lasting memories of the destruction and atrocity of the wars, of its authoritarian offshoots in Mediterranean countries, and of Soviet-style dictatorship in the East, played and still plays a decisive role in the appeal of uh, the European ID. In the last, last 20th century, the European project has been enthusiastically embraced in an Habermasian mood by economic and political elites and, to a lesser extent, by large fringes of the population. Integration was considered as a valuable attempt to overcome nationalistic passions and build a post-national democratic conversation among citizens gathered by shared understanding of their respective human rights. Although, for the reason you can imagine, the enthusiasm has faded somehow, it is still as per a pervasive view that no matter how imperfect it is, this project is worth to fight for, knowing that what occurred before. This is a great part of the rationale beyond Cyprus capitulation. It shows Europe, just as French President François Mitterrand conscientiously sacrificed social justice on the altar of the European ideal three decades earlier. This is also, I think, the underlying logic of Varoufakis' DiEM25 motto that the European Union was an exceptional achievement while austerity was a terrible mistake, but still democratization could save European capitalism from itself. Letting aside the political consequences, one of the main flaws of this appraisal of European integration is that it obscures the very economic and political processes that shape European, Europe, European integration 
and how they relate to the contemporary turbulences and political possibilities. One can basically follow two, but partially conflicting, leads in order to assess these socioeconomic dynamics. The first one emphasizes the articulation between economic interdependencies and institutions building in Europe in a functionalist manner. Political scientists have produced many versions of this argument, some of which insist more on the cumulative reinforcement mm -hmm. of problem-solving uh, institutional powers, others uh, on the resilience of uh, intergovernmental bargaining, others on the effective pressure of corporate leaders in favor of uh, integration. But the main point here is that for most Marxist and mainstream theories alike, continental integration has been considered as a necessary, although chaotic, path to overcome relative backwardness of capitalism in Europe vis-à-vis -vis the US. Unifying markets um, allows European countries to benefit from greater scale economy. Enhanced growth helps to contain crazy tendency, while also this accompanies the emergence of truly European firms better able to compete internationally. In other words, Integration derives functionally from the economic requirement of, political ac uh, of capital accumulation. According to this competition-centered approach, European integration is a consequence of intercapitalist competition at the level of firm and or state. It is an ongoing series of spatial institutional fixes which could not be reversed due to underlying economic interdependencies and could only be challenged by attempt to a supersession of existing institutions directly at the European level. Nation states are hardly relevant here, as the real terrain of political struggle is supposed to become irrevocably European. The theological scholarism here can be contrasted to the fact that both the most prominent revolutionary and the most profound neoliberal thinker of the past century were well aware about the strategic opportunities that goes along with the spatial redistribution of the attributes of policymaking. Lenin warned in 1915 that, quote, a United States of Europe under capitalism will be too gently suppressing soci socialism in Europe. The convergence with Friedrich Hayek reflections on the advantages of federalism is remarkable. In a 1939 article, Hayek indeed explained that once the principle of free competition and private property are in place, an international democratic government will lead to a restriction of power and scope of government. Ultimately, an international federation of nation states, quote, would appear to mean that neither government could have powers for socialist planning of economic life. post -festum, any account of the European integration must notice that continental integration was not a simple translation of national state functions to a common middle ground at the scale of the Union. Rather, it resulted in a profound restructuration of what Nikos Poulanzas called the structural subjectivities of the state. Building new layers of state powers allows to restructure embedded political biases and ultimately to change policies. 
This is the rationale of European integration since the mid-80s. Spatial restructuration of statehood is not a simple extension aimed at mimicking the newly required scale of capital accumulation. It's a way to promote embedded political biases more favorable to financial and transnational interest, a special fix to get rid of inherited past class compromised. The French regulationist Robert Boyer has provided, that you know well, <laughs> I do. has provided a comprehensive interpretation that we can read in this slide. The completion of the single market in the 80s and the creation of the euro resulted in a complete reversal of the hierarchy of structural forms. From the dominance of the wage-labor nexus at the national level in the post-war period, to the preeminence of competition and free trade policy at the European level in the 90s, and finally, the hegemony of money and finance since the completion of the euro. This reversal of hierarchy is a, a reversal of political issue. Uh, it's very in, much in line with Hayek's understanding of the dynamics resulting from a shift towards federalism. Social and industrial policies become victims of negative integration. They are downgraded as adjustment variables vis-a-vis -vis higher constraints arising from competitive pressure and financial stability. This is the profound meaning of the 2012 Draghi's claim in the Wall Street Journal that the European social model has already gone. The earth adjustment underwent by southern European societies since the crisis mirror with revenge the restructuration of labor markets implemented in Germany during the preceding decade. It also highlights the profound unevenness of development processes between countries participating in the Union. Ultimately, they became more integrated, mostly in the sense that their socio-productive systems were systematically stripped uh, from idiosocratic regulation and exchange rate mechanism that mediated the external exposure to the European and global competition. Inevitably, the blunt confrontation of competitive forces favored the country previously better aligned with the new hierarchy of selectivity, which, no incidentally, happened to be the biggest, Germany. In 1989, ahead of the completion of the single market, Commissioner Martin Bangerman rightly stressed that, quote, no other part of the world has ever seen such a radical experiment in the unleashing of free market forces. Complemented by the single currency, the experiment has been pushed even further. In the initial part of the journey, Overall economic growth was frustrating, but the integration allowed for some convergence of income standards. Financial inflows fueled a sustained debt-led growth in the southern periphery, and the extension of regional supply chain to some productive, led to some productive catching up in the east. With the crisis, the European illusion exploded like crystal failing on the ground, revealing the internal fault line of the continental uneven development. The unleashing of market forces as a means of continental integration had not delivered the promises of shared prosperity, but instead reinstated socioeconomic polarization 
within and between countries. Unemployment uh, in the euro area, you, you, you know, is still uh, very high at 9.8% in January 2007. And more generally, the economic prospects are very grim. This lack of output legitimacy of European institutions is aggravated by a weakening input legitimacy. What political scientists used to describe as a mismatch between politics at the national level and policies at the European level mutated during the present decade into, into something that we shall call, after Gramsci, bureaucratic Kaiserism. In response to the crisis, economic, financial, and socio-political uh, 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 turbulences, the European integration leaped forward with a larger initiative capacity to the independent European Central Bank, a hardening of coercive control of the Commission of the National Budgetary Procedures, and a de facto empowerment of the informal Eurogroup Council. Together, this shift contributed to a substantial retrenchment of the possibilities of popular interference through democratic procedures and to an effective neutralization of dissenting national political bodies in socioeconomic matters, as so clearly exemplified by, by Greece. This authoritarianism trend conflates with the reversal of structural selectivity in favor of finance and competition and at the expense of social and industrial policies to exclude most of the population from the European battlefield. Thanks to this exclusion, the European proto-state is in strong position to promote the immediate interest of a finance-led power bloc. However, it lacks the trend system of civil society who gave the modern state its resilience. The very uncertain future of the European proto-federal state results precisely from the fact that while certain state functions have been deeply integrated at the European level, others have not. Here I want to stress that, contrary to the times of Marx's manifesto, nowadays working men have a country. The socioeconomic interests of the subaltern classes have been, to a limited extent, of course, uh, uh, been incorporated to the institutional network of the European nation state, in particular through what Bourdieu used to call the left hand of the state. This has not been the case at the European level. The working men have no Europe. Most of the population has no stake in European integration and consequently nothing to lose from its demise. No social rights, no public services, no vivid political uh, or cultural communication. Hence, the centrifugal forces associated with the current popular discontent across the continent has already resulted in the Brexit, but also uh, the rise of right-wing populism. Hence also the inability of the European leadership to activate countervailing tendencies. Could these dynamics uh, be superseded by a kind of democratic insurrection at the European level? I doubt it. As rightly stressed by Judith Butler, we the people is a plural subject which is constituted in the course of its performative action. That means that demonstration and more broadly social movements and political mobilization require a seriality and a coordination of subjectivities at the European level uh, um, to allow the, performat the performativity of we the people. Uh, 
Yet there is no attractor for such a convergence of subjectivities at the European level. On the one hand, the exclusion of the populace from European polity deprive it from any effectual investment at this level. On the other hand, market integration without fiscal integration has allowed for desynchronization of national rhythm of class struggle. As long as this infra-European conflicting time frame will prevail, the prospect of a not too distant series of electoral successes of the left or genuinely European social movement will remain wishful thinking. This means that any substantial political turns against neoliberal policies will have a predominantly national popular moment. Considering this inaccessibility of a reorientation of the European project toward emancipatory politics, prioritizing the European ID over immediate steps in favor of social justice is the most certain recipe for failure. Left strategy in Europe is condemned to a ruse of the international reason. Its objective should be to advance social, economic, and emancipatory rights by getting rid of the neoliberal hierarchy of rules embedded in the current European integration, starting with an exit of the euro. In the meantime, it should advance its own internationalist agenda based on fair trade, capital controls, and liberal migratory policies. The ideal of post-national integration has not to be abandoned, but must be reassessed through group proposal of cooperation in the field of education, industrial policies, social protection, environmental regulation, which directly and positively resonate with the immediate interest of the majority of the population. To some extent, and you can hear here maybe, the existential questions facing the left in Europe mirror the issue at stake in the US. If the left conflates with a discredited liberal agenda in, in the matter of international economics, I'm afraid that nothing will stop the advances of nationalist forces. Thank you. Uh, is a research director at the uh, National Center for Scientific Research, uh, uh, among many other things. <laughs> has written many books. Uh, I, I, I would like to take first a couple of words to thank you, Jonah, for having organized all this. I was very eager to see the opportunity of a trip to New York to have this talk here, and you have it all wonderfully organized. Um, and I'm very grateful for that. That said, uh, it's a little bit odd to talk about internationalism, nationalism, and democratic sovereignty uh, just one week after Donald Trump's had been sworn in. And I wish not, nonetheless that it could be possible to have this discussion non, not under the long and nasty shadow of Trump, but in more general terms, which could possibly permit me to say a couple of unpalatable things. Um, because it, it is true that uh, internationalism is a matter of long-standing debate in the critical left, but which has received a renewed attention, a new, uh, a new charge of controversy, thanks to the globalization havoc and the crisis of the Eurozone, especially in Greece, where it has taken gigantic and nightmarish proportions. Every suggestion that getting out of the euro and take a go-it-alone way as a breakthrough progressive strategy has been repeatedly pointed at as a nationalistic drift, if not an outright compromission with the far right. 
It is then more relevant and urgent than ever uh, to raise again the twin questions of internationalism and democratic sovereignty. And maybe first by asking, what does internationalism really mean? And my answer would be not exactly what it thinks it does. As with Edgar Poe's purloined letter, one should start with seeing uh, what remains unseen, although plain for all to see. Internationalism can and should be read internationalism, naming thus what stands between the nations, therefore that there are nations. Read in a very literal manner, internationalism doesn't mean going over the nations. That would have to be called cosmopolitism, which is the idea that mankind is no longer divided in distinct political communities, but reunified in a single worldwide no-border community. So in the end, and maybe unwittingly, internationalism paradoxically seems to agree the very idea it meant to oppose. We, can then, uh, we could then observe in a certain brand of internationalism a weird fascination for globalization. Everything which is labeled international becomes thereby acceptable, even if the thing in question is a currency or trade or capital flows, which makes up, I believe, quite a misplaced, misled, and in the end, ill-conceived internationalism. One stays, for instance, flabbergasted that for the sake of internationalism, some leftists fall in love with the European currency or think that a restriction on cross-border capital flows is the beginning of a nationalistic regression, that limiting the harmful effects of the trade-level playing field pertains to a narrow parochialism or an into-the-fortress withdrawal. This is what I suggest to call intransitive internationalism, which means internationalism for the sake of internationalism, with utter disregard for its concrete contents. Intransitive internationalism fails to see that whatever is tagged internationalism is not likable by itself. For instance, there is a, a police internationalism embedded in institutions uh, such as Interpol, which at to me, at least, is not very likable. So is it really a progress in internationalism that shipping containers and capital flows ignore the borders? And symmetrically, would it really be a regression that they be restricted in an appropriate way? What is fascinating here, albeit of a dull fascination, is that the neoliberal capitalism has succeeded in imposing its own definition and its own contents of internationalism, even to some leftist critiques. The idea that a country could decide to get away from the Euro straitjacket, or that a reasoned protectionism could be considered so as to protect social and environmental standards, otherwise doomed to be defeated, such ideas now trigger outrage as nationalistic regressions. Make no mistake about it and get me well. I don't mean at all to deny the nationalistic risk, in fact, pertaining to the sheer idea of nation itself, even less at a time when xenophobic far-rights make the best of the discontents of globalization. So what I actually mean is twofold. Number one, I would like to get rid of the wicked antinomy 
which leaves us as only choices, either the world as it is, namely the unshackled neoliberal globalization, or the North Korea, which is the fate we would be doomed to had we the smallest desire to dent the economic freedoms. I suggest to consider in retrospect what was the configuration of capitalism in the Fordist era. Tariffs and barriers to trade, national currencies, strongly restricted capital flows, FDI subjected to tight controls, all things which today would be presented as a nationalistic nightmare. And please, again, get me well. I'm not making the case for a history rewind, nor am I depicting the Fordism as a golden age we should return to. I just want to show how much our norms have shifted when it comes to appraising the nationalistic risk and how much they have been reshaped by the neoliberal view of the world. What looks nightmarish in our present view was found totally harmless and beyond any question at that time. Number two, the key question the abstract internationalism constantly skips over is the question of democratic sovereignty, and of, of sovereignty in short. I know that the, this linkage between inter, the internationalist and the sovereignty issues uh, makes more sense from a European rather than from an, an American viewpoint, but I would like nonetheless to say a couple of things about that. Very significantly, sovereignty or sovereignism have become bywords to say far right, which is at the same time absurd and historically ludicrous. The misplaced internationalist anxiety has come to write down the sheer idea of sovereignty, which as a concept gets all its leftist and progressive credentials. Conceptually speaking, sovereignty is nothing but the pure idea of democracy. Sovereignty just means the endeavor of a political community to stand in control of its collective destiny. In France, for instance, the, the idea of sovereignty is the legacy of the 1789 revolution. It will be later strongly claimed and endorsed by the communards in 1871. It is, it is thus impossible to deny that it fully belongs to the heritage of the left. True, it is symmetrically impossible to deny that the idea of sovereignty has also been scooped by the rights and the far rights, but with a significant variation. As the sovereignty of the state, of the executive power, thus as a ratification of the confiscation of the power, a ratification of the state as a separate apparatus of power, entrenched in a form of institutional unaccountability, free to do whatever the class in command decides, then further and further away from the idea of sovereignty as a predicate of a self-governed community. In this sense, sovereignty does not refer anymore to a collective political subject, but to the, to the ability of a government to conveniently use all in instruments and leverages, which in the case of the bourgeois state, just means reorganizing the domination of the capital on a national basis, as typically exemplified by the Brexit government. Which means, in the end, that there are not only one but two views on sovereignty, and that we should resist a kind of political Gresham law, 
whereby the bad idea of sovereignty drives out the good one. So the rightist and statist view should not dismiss the core idea of sovereignty as a self-determined political subject. Conversely, we should not rule out either the possibility that this self-determination operates for the worst. There is no historical or political guarantee whatsoever that the multitude will behave as the political subject we are hoping for, dedicated to emancipation and universality. Politics is a realm of relative indeterminacy. The self-determined multitude can take any direction for the best or for the worst. At least we know that sovereignty is not doomed to be essentially regressive, as it is most often said, but that it can be a very potent and emancipatory motto as well. Which of these two possibilities will be activated, we don't know exante. What we know is that political activity is an endeavor to shape the events, to direct the course of the events on a certain path rather than on another. It is then but tautologically true that if abandoned to the far right, sovereignty will, became, will become a far right idea. But that doesn't prove anything else about sovereignty. All these questions are particularly salient when it comes to Eurozone membership. The hypothesis of a Grexit, I mean Greece leaving the Eurozone, for instance, has been paralyzed by a kind of misplaced internationalist superego, exiting the Euro being depicted as a nationalistic lapse. Many at the left in Greece and elsewhere have equated the Grexit with a quasi-fascistic drift. However, the problem with this equation was that in the Greek case, it was immediately proven wrong. The people supporting this option belonged to the left wing of a left wing party, and all Trotskyites or Altitharian Marxists were beyond any suspicion of any rightist deviation. As we know, for instance, the welcoming stance with respect to the migrants and the foreign workers was one of the strongest common grounds in Syriza, obviously shared as such by the former left platform which was advocating for the Grexit, hardly a far-right group. It was then no longer a matter of abstract general argument over the rightist fate of sovereignty. It was a matter of concrete empirical evidence. An unquestionable leftist sovereignism was there before our eyes. So if, as the saying goes, the proof of the pudding is in eating it, the pudding was there and it could be eaten. It's a political failure that it hasn't been. A political failure which can partly be ascribed to what I call an abstract or an imaginary internationalism. What could be a, a real internationalism instead? A real internationalism starts with the fact that it is somewhat logical that the political life be mostly developed on a national basis for very practical reasons. Politics is a matter of concrete interactions, which are obviously favored by a community of language, and even in certain occasions by sheer physical proximity. It is impossible to ignore that the density of political interactions is of paramount importance in the outbreak of uprisings which explains why they, uh, they occur first on a local, then possibly on a national basis. 
Here is precisely where national determinations and a real internationalism can meet. Actually, the fact that political struggles are primarily determined on, on a national basis doesn't preclude at all, quite on the contrary, that people abroad feel nonetheless very concerned, and all the more so if these struggles try for emancipatory universal stakes, which as such do not belong to any nation in particular, but can potentially make sense to anyone. Third countries' nationals can then perfectly identify with political struggles breaking out in other countries than theirs, insofar as the goals these struggles fight for are political commons with no national peculiarity attached. Yet one thing is to share political goals at distance. Another is to concretely join the struggle. Only a tiny minority of political activists can have a concrete internationalist involvement. If of international concern, these struggles remain thus mostly national. For instance, the French Commune in 1871 immediately drew attention from revolutionaries all over Europe, who immediately recognized that if born in the particular place of Paris, this revolution was theirs as well. Yet one could hardly talk of a genuinely internationalist movement, even though the Commune received the endorsement of the First International. The involvement of foreign fighters remained marginal in La, marginal in La Commune, which it in fact didn't even succeed to become just a nationwide revolution. In the same way, plenty of activists in Europe recognized the struggle of the Greek people against the, tro the Troika as their business. Nonetheless, at the end of the day, people flocking at Syntagma Square to lean on the government were Greeks, and it could hardly be otherwise. Real internationalism then is twofold. First, it starts with the radical dismissal of the typically nationalistic saying, which is, right or wrong, my country. The internationalist stance is that if my country is wrong, I don't feel tied by any loyalty bond whatsoever, and I even respond to a disloyalty duty. Real internationalism then goes on with a special attention to the universal causes, which deserve in themselves to be supported wherever they burst out. As a result, real internationalism mostly aims at developing as much as it can cross-border political bonds and solidarities, on top of which, of course, all those dealing with the domination of the capital. Yet two things have to be kept in mind. First, the concrete involvement in cross-border or foreign struggle remained the sociological privilege of what could be called an internationalist elite, people who got a higher education, who speak several languages, who are used to international trips, and so on. At least with this privilege should come attached an obligation of not lecturing those whose social conditions have not empowered them to the same extent. Second, and most importantly, real internationalism does not dismiss political struggles conducted on national basis, because whenever one breaks out somewhere, it is already a kind of miracle. The idea that a worldwide or a continent-wide 
synchronized uprising would be the precondition for a political transformation is simply preposterous. Real internationalism has to cope with the fundamental fact of the desynchronization of the national political cycles. It should have been, for instance, utterly absurd to blame a Grexit government for going it alone and not sticking to the internationalist discipline. When you consider how unlikely is the coming into office of a genuine progressive government, the joint probability of 19 in the Eurozone, or even 10, or five such governments, is just ridiculous. But it is nonetheless what it would take to turn the Euro into a democratic and socially progressive currency. Should a Greek government, or any government in position to make the exit move, stand by and wait for the others to catch it up? Of course not. If a progressive government had the opportunity to take a path-breaking step against the neoliberalism, as a left exit definitely would be, it had the right and the duty to play its hand, even if alone. If internationalism is a perspective of a worldwide synchronized revolution, then it is flawed and flawed and totally hopeless. No such thing will ever happen. The best, the best favor to be done to internationalism is to bring it back from the world of fantasies so as to give it some effectiveness. For the sociological reasons I have indicated, only a tiny activist elite can leave politics in a truly internationalist way. For all the others, politics remain grounded in the national area, where due to a, lo a locality effect, concrete interactions are at their highest density. Connecting with sister organizations abroad, strengthening political ties about cross-border issues, this is the permanent task of internationalism. Yet some could underscore that internationalism is not just that. It is also, they would say, a matter of creating a unified working class over the borders so as to eventually dissolve the borders. Yet internationalism most often has for only intellectual baggage Marx Engels' quotation, the working men have no country. The problem with this quotation, so many times and so mechanically repeated, is that read in extenso, its real meaning is much less clear than its usual reading seem to believe. It is also that read too literally, it was doomed to work as a wishful thinking, actually awfully proven wrong in 1914 in Europe. It hasn't been refuted since that, nationalistic, that nationalist affects are deeply entrenched and, extraordin um, and extraordinarily potent, most often for the worst. This should be rec recognized also. But the politics which starts with the assumption that it is possible to jump over them is just irrelevant. Internationalism is a long hard slog to diffuse these affects and to supersede them with universal, reason-driven schemes, but also to deal with them in between, which means shaping them for the sake of nation-based progressive politics as long as such a politics is out of reach at an international scale. Internationalism should not be a hindrance to a political decisive action wherever it can be undertaken. 
if due to its position in its own political cycle, a powerful transformative movement can make a difference in a, part, in a particular country, all we have to do is to let it go, to support it, and above all, to emulate it, to take it as a beacon and draw some lessons from its experience before putting our feet in his footsteps. I'm afraid that the definitely bright future of the worldwide border-rocking revolution is so remote that it is utterly ir irrelevant and in the end depressing, so that eventually I would define the real internationalism this way. It is a matter of organizing the revolutionary contagion. Thank you. Thank you so much. So lots to talk about, and uh, we'll have some time for discussion if uh, um, people have questions, comments, responses, provocations. <laughs> Go ahead. So my name is Neil. I'm in the grad program here. Um, one thing I've noticed, at least looking at like polls and the kind of uh, analysis of what's going on politically in countries in the European Union. Um, it seems like the right has been able to corner like a minority of the electorate that is very opposed to the EU and to the Euro. Um, and I think they're, uh, for the reasons that you stated, it makes sense that the EU and the Euro is a target of the left, should be a target of the left as a kind of a, a block on our ability to achieve anything. But it seems to me at least that, or it seems to be the case that very the, the number of people in, the, in many of these countries that actually support leaving the European Union is still quite low. Um, and it's been crucial to the far right to rise to power. But it's not clear to me that the left can um, successfully win over that minority that's already convinced of the need to leave the European Union from the right. Mm -hmm. And you're still dealing with the, the vast majority of the country that supports remaining in the European mm -hmm. Union. Uh, perhaps because people, not necessarily because people feel that they gain anything from the EU uh, or the Euro, but maybe just because they don't see it as the, the central problem or understand its uh, importance. Um, so I'm wondering, uh, you know, what you, if you think that that's an accurate assessment, and also like how you do you think that what, what needs to happen is for these parties of the left in Europe to kind of adopt a more aggressive opposition to the European Union and try to organize uh, larger and larger numbers numbers of people to see the European Union as like the uh, kind of the main sticking point for progressive politics. Mm -mm -mm. Even in Greece, I mean, even in Greece, yeah, yeah. the vast majority of people were opposed to Brexit. Mm -mm -mm. Can I? Can we take a couple and then oh, we'll yes. come back? Yes, yes, Go ahead. Well, I would more or less ask you just if you can apply that concretely to Brexit, because there you had a situation where it really seemed that the whole referendum vote became hegemonized by this far right, became so infected with uh, racist themes, and there was no kind of pre-existing left movement for an exit, and so the left was really flat-footed on it, uh, there was a small group that tried to push for Alexit, didn't gain much of a constituency around it. So just concretely in that circumstance, I mean, what, what should the left have done there tactically for this kind of, you know, the events already in front of you? It's kind of related with the, the previous question. I have many questions. Yeah, so I'm go gonna, ahead. I'm going to add to that. First of all, I'm, I'm interested if you could say something about... The, I find it very interesting, the difference between the Brexit vote where clearly the right you know, dominated that campaign, and and there was the 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 Lexit, the voice for Lexit was very uh, for left exit was very weak, and the the French the vote against the European Constitutional Treaty in 2005, which was a left campaign, is, exactly. you know, and I I wonder if you could say something about the difference there, 
But the other thing more, more fundamentally, and, and I understand that, that you're responding to a debate that is ongoing in Europe and uh, people might have seen you know, some of the debates between Wolfgang Streeck, for example, mm -hmm, and Habermas, mm -hmm. uh, and there was a whole attack on Streeck by Adam Tooze. I don't know if you guys saw that in no. the London Review of Books mm -hmm. over exactly this question, saying you're a, if you're against the euro, you're a nationalist, exactly. you're, you're essentially compared him to a Nazi, which yeah. <laughs> for a German is... But I also think that the, the, there's a, a, the harder question in some ways for the left is how to make it work. I mean, in other words, like a, the, what, what you gestured towards, Cedric, but, but didn't talk too much about, if, if Greece left the euro, would they be able to import you know, anything? Would, they, would their capital reserves, their foreign currency reserves, dwindle so quickly that they couldn't buy any, any oil? Or, you know, that, that there are real difficult material constraints, mm -hmm. no, that make this, make this a real challenge. And one of the arguments I've heard from people who defend Mitterrand's uh, turn to, to rigor, to mm -hmm. austerity, uh, is that they, they couldn't have done uh, the sort of capital controls and, and that technically it was no longer feasible to, mm -hmm. to create a kind of uh, an economy and, um, on, on a national basis in that way. And that, I, see, I think, is a, uh, an argument that the, the, the left really needs to have something to say. That's a very difficult, the sort of material constraints in some ways is more difficult even than the question of political will, mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. Um, well, th th these are very, very interesting and very strategic questions you you all raised um, about the polls. In a way, you're right. Polls are saying are telling us that uh, uh, the idea of uh, uh, an exit uh, gets a minority support in the in the population. But. Um, <laughs> You know, should we trust the polls? That's the question. As Jonah recalled, uh, there has been a kind of, you know, uh, grandeur nature poll in 2005 in France. It, it has been the referendum on the constitutional treaties. And the outcome of the, ref the referendum was extremely clear. A very, uh, a very significant major majority of the people voted no. And Actually, it was, uh, uh, it was a leftist campaign. Uh, it, even although, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, left votes were mixed with right and far right votes, that's okay. But, the, you know, the, the, the political force which has been leading the debate during all the referendum, referendum cam campaign uh, were uh, leftist forces. And the argument was made from a leftist uh, Point of view, but the truth is that the, especially in the media, the idea of exiting the euro is uh, disqualified. Uh, no, it, it, it is to say the least. And you know, I I don't know how you you, you put it. We, we're almost compared to uh, to Nazis. Uh, no, seriously, you know, you can hear arguments such as uh, if if we exit the euro, uh, there will be uh, camps again. You know, so. In these conditions, not the fun kind of case. no, no, the no, no, <laughs> the bad ones, <laughs> the, the, the bad ones. So you know, having a rational debate in these conditions is is really tricky. Um, uh, but I would like to say a couple of things about what happened in Greece in two thousand and uh, in two thousand and fifteen. 
because uh, it was repeatedly said that uh, the idea of a Brexit uh, only got a minority support, which is formally true. Um, well, there has been a referendum also in Greece in July 2015, and the official question was, do you agree or not with the memorandum? But it was painful to see that saying no was, concretely speaking, voting for an exit. Um, you know, people got that well. By the way, uh, during uh, the, the, the two weeks of campaign, uh, they, they, you know, they, uh, they got a carpet bombing in the media explaining them that if they voted no, that would mean getting out of, or, uh, getting out of the euro. So the, things were r really clear. Nonetheless, they voted at 60, 65 percent, 65, yes, 65% uh, in favor of the no. So that was a, you know, um, that, that was a, 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 real a real political experience and uh, which was uh, rather, rather uh, uh, compelling. Fact, yeah, just on this, in fact, they were cut already from the euro. Yeah. Like when during this period, they, they had only limited access to the euro uh, through their mm -hmm. uh, bankomat. So mm -hmm. they experienced that when they voted. Mm -hmm. It was not a fantasy. Mm -hmm. But uh, where b both of you are right is in the fact that uh, there is no potent and legitimate leftist voice conveying the idea of, uh, of an exit. And this is because uh, this is, you will you will tell tell us your your, your idea uh, about that, Cedric. But uh, you know the whole debate on the left is overwhelmed by the official left, which I would rather call the fake left. You know because uh, you know that's rather funny. You know at a time where everybody is screaming to death about post-truth politics and fake news. You know they, all the journalists keep on calling left people such as François Hollande. <laughs> Which is in fact fake left, uh, fake left, and I, isn't that fake news? I'm, I'm, you know, I'm just asking. Uh, alternative, <laughs> alternative facts. Yes, yeah, alternative facts. You're right. Uh, well, so the, the 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 debate in the left is overwhelmed by the official left parties, uh, which have radically banned uh, any discussion uh, uh, about the the euro. And as usual, you know, uh, there is a void to be filled in the in the global political landscape, and this void has been been filled by the far right. It's exactly the same as in the United States, you know. Uh, you have a Trump. Uh, instead of having a, a real, a genuine left, uh, you have someone like Trump who comes to fill the void. Uh, well, I think, I think things are changing rapidly. Uh, and more and more the idea of, uh, of, of an exit of Euro is gaining, is gaining support and, and becomes m more and more acceptable due to the fact that, you know, the, the, the concrete results uh, in economic and social terms of the Euro discipline are appalling. So, so this idea is, uh, is making its way. Yeah, by the way, I want to also thank you for organizing the debate yes, and Frederick proposing to join. To join. Uh, so thanks a lot also for this question. And uh, I will, my first answer to why the euro is still, uh, the, the struggle against the euro is still uh, difficult on the left, will basically just restating two arguments I have made here. The first is history. 
And second is that it's, there is no other way to, to make uh, politics right now because accumulation of capital is already at this scale. That's the two core arguments. And the third argument that I tried to develop was that, in fact, that this international integration was biased. That was ju not just an adjustment, but a change in the balance of forces between classes. So, when you, so the first thing for left-wing people in Europe was to understand that. Because all of them, and I was in, very involved in the 90s in the uh, uh, struggle for another uh, Europe, uh, the European Social Forum, we have marched uh, to... Well, we were very sure, like Bourdieu, mm. that we will build a European social movement, and so that we will win what we, have, what we want to, to win directly at the European level. And that became very clear that, that was there, there is no way. First, with the referendum, which was really a slap in the face of the, of the people of Europe, because the referendum, we won the referendum, so they were defeated, and in spite of that, they implemented the treaty. And the second thing was, of course, with the crisis and the management of the crisis and the uh, strengthening of European policies ability to, 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 to drive uh, reforms without any uh, new democratic input at the European level. And so that you, you need time to, 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 to understand what is going on, to adjust your ideology and so on. So there is this, I think, kind of uh, time which is necessary. Uh, there is also uh, uh, another point concerning the popularity in the population of the euro itself. And I think here that there are very various reasons, depending on where you are. Uh, for example, in Spain, I, I was at uh, uh, an event uh, uh, of the Plan B summit at, uh, uh, in, um, in Madrid a few one year ago with uh, some people from Podemos and uh, Miguel Urban, which is one of the responsible of, of Podemos at the end of the meeting. There was also Varoufakis here, and Varoufakis had a huge amount of applause saying that he would democratize Europe directly and so on. And people were so excited about that. And, uh, not, not so much with my talk. I made them fun at one moment, but you know. And at the end of the meeting, we were in, in front of all people, and uh, Miguel Van come right me and told me, "Yeah, I think you're right, but there's no way to say that. <laughs> so how can I make politics with that? That was his question, and I think that it's a real question. But in the meantime, in Greek, in Greece, they have made politics without clarifying that point, and right now there is that. So here, the, I think that there is no other things than building a concrete project, convincing and not working with the polls. Because if you are uh, following the polls, you will, be there, you, you, you will lose at the end of, of the day. And I think that uh, the trends in the opinion poll are encouraging uh, uh, in, in this regard. And recent polls say that a majority in every country is unsatisfied with the management of the economy by the European mm -hmm. Union. So that's, that's not exiting the Eurozone, but you know, that's already, uh, I think, that. But there is other worrying trend also, that the, there is a wider uh, disgust with democracy. So what is democracy? Uh, okay. But uh, the fact that there is less and less ability of the people to control what is at stake is resulting not only in uh, an unsatisfaction at the European level, but also at the national level. People say that they don't believe so much in democracy. There is a good paper in Socioeconomic Review about that with precise number. So uh, that will be my first uh, round of questions. If I have two minutes, I want to just insist maybe on the, the economic dimension, condition of feasibility. So in the case of Greece, in fact, we have a counterfactual 
of a Grexit, it what what the cost of not exiting from. Uh, mm. So even the worst outcomes of a kind of disintegration, losing a purchasing power for the population of about 40% and having debt around 200% of GDP, you, you can fail, but fail so much, you, you really, there is a room of maneuver to, to, to have some kind of difficulties in exiting the Eurozone. That's the general argument. The, when you look more into the details, in fact, in Greece, there is huge uh, production capacity which have disappeared during the crisis, which will have been very much supported by the devaluation. We have two cases of devaluation we were announced as true catastrophes, and we uh, occurred not to be such catastrophes. That was uh, Russia in the 1982. That was, on the contrary, the beginning of the rebound of the Russian economy, and Argentina in 2001. Mm. And in each time, a few months after devaluation, very rapidly, the activity is, is booming and unemployment is diminishing. And that's very spectacular. And there is no reason to believe that in Greece that would not have been the case. So some people say, mm -hmm. well, you don't have soya in Greece, you don't have uh, oil and so on. But in Greece, you have tourism. Tourism is an export product. As an, I don't say that it's a nice way to develop yourself. But uh, still, it, it functions in terms of uh, the impact of the relations the same way. There are other arguments. Another argument is that, in fact, the Greek economy is very close. Uh, it has a smaller uh, rate of uh, openness than uh, France, which is a much bigger economy. So that's very strange. That's a very close economy. And so because of that, it's very sensible to a to, to, uh, kind of uh, reflection. Uh, but we can, of course, that's a difficult discussion. But I think that, yes, if, it, if, if I may add a couple of words about, uh, so as to rephrase what uh, Cédric has just said, but from uh, another point of view. Because uh, in another part of my works, I'm working in a kind of, you know, uh, a Spinozian way about the role of the affects in politics. And uh, I think that uh, all this situation um, is typical of what I would call the asymmetries of fear. What, what, what are these asymmetries? They consist, they consist in the fact that um, people prefer the known shit they are in sure. to uh, uh, rather than a new uncertain course. Uh, and it, it was very impressive how, uh, how strongly it worked uh, uh, in Greece. A friend of mine went in Athens in February 2015 and he talked to a, a woman uh, who was uh, a, a rather high-rank uh, official in, uh, the, in Syriza. And they talked about the idea of a Grexit. And what she replied was, we have been the guinea pig of the Troika. We do not want to be the guinea pig of the, of the Grexit. So you know, that, that was terrible. That was really, uh, really dramatic. Uh, but that's, that's the way it was. Uh, so you have, to, you have to, to, to deal with that also. Sure. Other questions, thoughts? Go ahead. I guess, um I guess, so both of you talked about sort of a, a practical or a real left internationalism. And I guess my question is what the serious prospects are for something like that. I mean, one thing that 
uh, was particularly kind of depressing around all of what happened in Greece was how little solidarity there was from what is clearly the country where left politics matter the most at this point, Germany. So insofar as like Germany doesn't have an internationalist left, it is going to, you know, it is going to, the, the seismic waves of that um, are going to spread to all the other countries in Europe whose economy is going to be, to greater or lesser extent, always determined by what happens in Germany. Mm. So I'm, I'm curious, I guess, both of you ended on this sort of optimistic note about the prospects for a left internationalism that's not based on the EU, but I suppose uh, it seems like from looking at the, the last, you know, and I'm no expert in European politics, but it, it seems like, uh, is there that much reason to hope uh, um, for actual left internationalism inside or outside of the <laughs> EU, given the current uh, conjuncture and kind of how the crisis played out? Paradoxically, I think so, because uh, I totally agree with you uh, about what you said uh, uh, mm -hmm. on uh, Germany, which is really the linchpin of all the uh, the European situation and raises a very particular uh, issue. But uh, my point would be that, uh, you know, the, the Tsipras failure has been a wake-up call for all the, you know, the what I called uh, the, not very nicely, the imaginary internationalism. Uh, because uh, it, it was uh, very spectacular in France. Many people were supporting Tsipras, um, not to exit the, to the euro, but to, uh, in the hope that he, he would be able to arm twist the other European countries, which was a total fantasy, you know and armed with the other European countries so as to uh, redirect the, the, the overall uh, uh, Euro construction, you know, so, so, so as to be more uh, socially progressive, democratic, and blah, 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 and so on. Um, and the, uh, the utter, the spectacular failure of this uh, strategy has become plain for all to see. And it has triggered a radical uh, strategic and, uh, and political overhaul, in, uh, especially in the French, uh, in the French uh, uh, critical left, where the idea of um, the idea of a, a democratic and socially progressive euro is almost, uh, you know, is almost uh, abandoned. Uh, and so it, it, seemed, it seems to me that, uh, uh, well, it, it has been a, a very hard blow to take, you know, the, the failure of, of Tsipras, but it has put some ideas straight. And now people are uh, really considering the idea of getting out of the euro and working in the direction of what I call the, uh, the, the, the real internationalism. So if somebody is, is in position to do it, uh, uh, let's, let it, they will go, they will do it, uh, and, and we will come in support, you know, and we'll try to emulate. But I think, I don't know what you, what you believe about that, that uh, the, the idea of a synchronized... Um, 
left of progressive uprising uh, all over the the eurozone is now is now practically dead no i i cannot more agree with you the, the, the debate has completely changed in europe at least in the radical left and in social movement who were very very pro european and are much more defiant right now that's for sure that's shifting very rapidly even in the green there are people which are hesitating you know mm -hmm. that's already something <laughs> big <laughs> uh, yeah. but uh, that's i think that that's the problem is also shifting because it becomes more and more mainstream to consider the possibility of the euro exit uh, in the government they are working on that they are considering this possibility For example, we have met with a, a colleague of mine, Sebastian Vimeux, from a French Institute of uh, Macroeconomic Institute, an evaluation of the cost of visiting the Eurozone from the point of view of the balance sheet of the, mm. uh, the households and so on. It was published, and very rapidly, Pisani Ferry read it. Mm. Uh, we had uh, feedback from the French Ministry of Foreign uh, Affairs. We had feedback from Italian institutions which are looking at, so, oh, what will it cost? So that's the, the hypothesis right now is very... So I think that also it's important for the left to not be the latest to realize that the euro is still not viable. Because, you know, for the left, is, uh, the mainstream is shifting toward finding a new arrangement, and we are still fighting for another euro. <laughs> that would be very costly for the, the next period. So we have also to think in, in this perspective. And more generally, considering the perspective for the left, I think that what we have seen everywhere uh, right now that's in France, the last ex latest example is France, is that there is a kind of pasochization which mm -hmm. is occurring. It's either an internal or an external pasochization. Mm. External pasochization, that's the case in Greece. International, uh, internal pasochization, that's the case in the UK. And France, in fact, yeah. as always, is in between because you have un Mélenchon and Hamon, which is an internal shift to the left and an external left, which has some space. So that means that in the meantime that you have right populism, which in, is in advance, because it's more well organized for more time, it's more cla uh, clarified ideologically and so on, but it's also more isolated from the rest of society. You have a left uh, option, which is gaining some space, but I think that it, which is still poorly politically articulated in terms of what could be a scenario convincible. We let, we'll take one or two more questions and we'll wrap up by 2.30. Go ahead. Uh, thanks very much for the talk. So this, this, this question comes, I have two questions, both of which come from a position of ignorance, so I hope you forgive me. But um, one of the things that makes me uh, uncomfortable when I hear the arguments that you both have made about uh, nationalism to better serve internationalism, as you put it, which I think is a very nice formulation, is that the euro, to me from the outside, not knowing anything about European politics, the euro, European project has meant certainly the things that you have described, the imposition of neoliberalism, the restriction on budgets, the, uh, the undermining of the social wage at the national level, level, et cetera, et cetera, anti-democracy at the European level. All of that makes plenty of sense to me. But the other aspect of the European project is obviously the free movement of people yeah. across borders, the Schengen Agreement, um, which whether or not they, um, whether or not it was the intention, of course, has, has greatly, I think, has provided significant benefits to people who would otherwise be working in peripheral labor markets in Poland or the southern periphery or whatever else. So 
I suppose one thing that is tricky when you're making the case that the left, as you're saying, has to make is that we risk pandering to the we risk pandering to anti-European sentiment, the anti-EU sentiment that exists amongst the European population because of opposition to the second and not opposition to the first. So for instance, Jonah referenced the debate between Adam Tooze and Streep in the uh, London Review of Books. And one of the things that made me very uncomfortable about wanting to identify with Streep's argument in that uh, exchange was that he spent the first half of his essay, um, his, re his rejoinder essay, uh, attacking Angela Merkel, not Angela Merkel in general, as I read his essay, but Angela Merkel for her position on, right. for taking the position mm -hmm. right. mm -hmm. of the refugee mm -hmm. crisis. And she said this was, right. she did this without consulting the German people. She did this, you know, so he attacked her procedurally for being anti-democratic, but he also seemed to be straying into saying that the German people don't want this. What are you doing? Mm -hmm. um, and so I wonder, I suppose, if you could speak a little bit. I mean, you, you spoke about this in, in, in outlining the left project, which is that the left project has to be also very clear on this issue. But I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about more about the difficulty of articulating a pro-internationalist position in the short term on this issue alongside the obvious crit criticisms of the EU that we have and the criticisms of the European. How, how does the left do that when I think it would be very tempting to pander to nationalist sentiment, to pander to the people in inside Europe who, all, who, who partly dislike the EU for these reasons as well, for the fact that it's allowing immigrants to come and take their jobs or whatever else. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that difficulty. And the other question I had, which is maybe related, is uh, since we have you here and you guys are uh, very well, uh, obviously know a lot about France, I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the coming election. Mm. I, I haven't followed it very closely, except to know that the specter of Le Pen hangs in, in the background. So I was wondering if we, had, we could abuse your presence here to talk a little bit about the Pleasure. <laughs> Let's just take, go ahead. Yeah, and related to Adana's question, if you could say a little bit about the, I think Hamon proposed some sort of alliance with Mélenchon or something, and it was from the FT uh, yesterday, so. The Hamon Mélenchon. Yeah, it's possible. Yeah, I doubt that it's possible, but yeah, mm -hmm. more about anything. Go ahead. Well, I was just, I mean, maybe at the end we could discuss it, if we could just move the discussion to um, beyond the advanced capitalist countries and Europe to uh, some place like India, for example, where the left, the official left, has also been pretty against uh, neoliberalization, officially at least, and um, and more protectionist, and uh, uh, trying to be an impediment, at least until they had uh, seats in the parliament, until they could. And, but eventually they've lost those seats because, I suppose, in trying to fight uh, uh, transnational capital, they have sort of not forgotten to organize against, I think, the national bourgeoisie that has now turned into a transnational I don't know if that, I mean, if you could say something about uh, that. And just to add to the list of questions, uh, <laughs> tell me if this is too much. No, no, please, you, you please, look please. No, I just no, no, didn't no. get just the beginning of your question. To go beyond the advanced capitalist countries, yeah. which is just talking about India. Mm -hmm. India, okay, that was it. I just, I just uh, also adding to Adana's question, I think that there's a way, you know, so what, what exists, the U.S., the American left, such as it exists, you know, and I would say we're all on the left in this room. The people, you we're know, we're on the left. We're on the left. We're on the left. We're on the left. On the one hand, I think lots of people see, for example, in the Bernie Sanders campaign, what you're talking about, the, the criticism of globalization and sort of neoliberal, the international uh, neoliberalization of, 
global capitalism, uh, a, a critique of that that avoids the, the that can respond to Trump, mm. for example, mm -hmm. and Trumpism, and avoids the pitfalls of sort of racist chauvinism and actually opposes that. And on the other hand, for the most part, when you talk to an audience of the American left, when when things get framed in terms of nationalism or sovereignty. It just makes us, yeah. uh, it's mm -hmm. really hard, because what we immediately, what comes to mind is big border walls and mass deportations and some attempt to define the, the, uh, uh, the, the citizenry in a way that is inherently exclusionary. And I wonder if it's just a difference in context or if, if that we, uh, I mean, there are people who talk about sort of a progressive American nationalism. They are, they're liberals, essentially, you know what I mean? They're liberals and... It's something that uh, th those of us on the far left in particular go, no, we're not, this is not something that we are okay with. Right. Do, do you see, yeah. And I wonder, yeah, if is it a contextual difference or, or are we just not wrong on this as with so much? No, 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 I think this is precisely, this is a, a, a strategic point, a strategic issue and I very much agree with what, what you said. And actually, we're walking a tightrope because we're trying to make the case for uh, leaving the euro without falling into, uh, you know, a, a nationalistic drift. And this is a very, very narrow strait to, to pass through. Uh, and we have to uh, strongly emphasize what makes the difference uh, between our option and uh, what is uh, commonly... Uh, commonly advocated for by the, by the far right, which um, I believe would not make the, would not do the exit from the euro, but this, either, this would be another uh, discussion. So the, I think the question is, what do we let circulate? What are the good things uh, to, 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 to circulate? Uh, our feeling that the, the good things are not shipping containers, capitals, FDIs, uh, and so on. But the, circula the circulation of the people, of course, we should keep it uh, uh, as much as we can. So there is no contradiction at all uh, between uh, um, advocating for an exit of the euro and advocating at the same time for a reinforcement in the exchanges of scientists, artists, uh, tourists, students, and so on, for uh, cross-teaching national histories, for uh, organizing, uh, I don't know, uh, connections between uh, industries and literatures as well, yeah, uh, you know. So all these bonds, uh, but non-economic bonds between uh, European countries, have to be have to be uh, strengthened, and my what makes me really uh, uh, um, what makes me really flabbergasted is that the you know the the economic uh, themes have entirely occupied the, the the minds, and that that people are ju now judging the degree of internationalism only by the economic and financial exchanges, which is absolutely incredible from, from, a, 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 from a leftist uh, viewpoint. I would later add some, some things about the, the, the coming election, but Cédric, if you...
Yeah, if you want to. Yeah, I agree with you on everything that, including migratory policy, uh, labor market, I mean, which means that you need to to success economically to, to sustain your project. But mm. that's part of the discussion, of course. Uh, on the election, yeah, uh, I think that, so there is, the, the white picture is that there is one strong candidate, which is Marine Le Pen, and many middle candidates, which are not very weak, but not very strong too, uh, which are François Fillon from, from the Conservative Party, Emmanuel Macron, which is basically uh, liberal, 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 mm -hmm. uh, uh, Benoît Hamon, which will be uh, at the right of Bernie Sanders, and uh, Mélenchon, which will be at the left of Bernie Sanders, uh, a little yeah. bit, both of them. And right now, there is a huge pressure, so that's the second question, there is a huge pressure for uh, uh, fusion between Hamon and Mélenchon. And the, the pressure will be huge on Mélenchon in the next day because uh, Hamon is surging in the polls, and if they are not merging, they won't be able to go to the second round. So you see a, a little bit the dynamics. And I think that this, the conjuncture tactically is very difficult for Mélenchon, but he has to be strong on that, to say, of course, yes, I would love to do that, but you know, there, what occurred in Greece, we won't, if that occurs again, that's, we are completely dead. So I will not transit in the key point, which is basically exiting the Euro treaties. There is other dimension that we could discuss, but I think that the hard point is here. And I don't think that they will be able to agree on that, so I don't think there will be too uh, of merger of that. So that would be my very brief assessment of the situation. I just would like to add one question because I think that's a very good question. Yeah. And I, I asked uh, after that about India, but, uh, because, in fact, we, we do not have anymore a really national bourgeoisie in the sense that its uh, interests will be articulated at the uh, French level. Nor it is articulated mainly at the European level. Ne uh, nevertheless, it is very keen to protect the euro. So I have just to say one word to articulate that. In fact, the euro is a, was a fantastic way for the international French bourgeoisie to, to become international. Not only European, but to play internationally. It helps it a lot to raise capital, to expand in Latin America, to expand in, beyond its traditional sphere, which were in, in, uh, in Africa. So because of that, the bourgeoisie right now is very tied to the, to the European project through the euro on the one hand, and to the project of global ca uh, capitalism. But I think that right now, the traditional question that we first have to face, if we fight the European Union, we are not uh, uh, waging the real fight against our bourgeoisie, is not relevant because for our bourgeoisie, the main stuff is to concede the EU. They are very, very keen to protect that. So mm -hmm. I think that, but that's a very important question. We, so a lot about that. <laughs> Look at this number. I, I would just add a couple of things about the coming elections in France because the, the the French case has to be replaced in the you know in the worldwide uh, terminal crisis of what we call in Europe the social democracies. You know what I called earlier the fake left, and. Um, you know, it's, it's extremely striking, by the way. You know, in Greece, the PASOK has almost been wiped out from the political landscape. Uh, in, uh, in UK, uh, so uh, uh, Jeremy Corbyn is break, uh, radically breaking with the Blair and Brown era. Uh, in, in Spain, uh, as you know, uh, if the Socialist Party still displays some resistance, um, 
Podemos ha, has made a, a, a spectacular ushering onto the political stage. In Germany, the, the SPD has shrinked the status of a minority partner in any coalition. And in France, the Socialist Party uh, you know, uh, is going towards a, a, a crushing defeat. Uh, so, uh, so this is the, the, the global landscape. And there is a particular candidate uh, who could be the, the, the perfect uh, catalysis, the perfect catalyst of the, of the collapse of the Socialist Party, who is Emmanuel Macron. Uh, Emmanuel Macron, it seems to me, is really the ultimate gasp of the system, of the neoliberal system. So, uh, because it, 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 it takes to its highest degree the symptom, the, the, the purest symptom of the political crisis, with the, which is the uh, outright indistinction between the right, the right and the, uh, the official left, uh, uh, which both have equally embraced uh, the neoliberal globalization agenda, you know. So, you know, the problem, that the right be rightist, who could complain about? You know, it, it belongs to its concept. You know, uh, the troubles arise when uh, the left turns rightist, which is the case, and there comes a void to be filled. Uh, so, and um, uh, 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 presently, the void is filled by political monsters, by Trump in the USA, by UKIP in the UK, and by Le Pen in uh, most likely by by Le Pen in France. So, um, Macron. Uh, you know, uh, he himself is saying that he, he belongs neither to the right to the right nor to the left. You know, so so this is the taking the, the, the indistinction between the right and the left to to, to this ultimate degree, uh, and that's why I call it the ultimate gasp of the of the, the system, uh, the, because you know the, the the hidden message is in fact there's nothing to discuss about. Uh, this is just a matter of uh, rational administration of the economic order. This is a technical matter, you know, politically it's all done, you know, there's nothing to, to, to discuss about. And my, you know, apparently Macron is, uh, is doing well in, in the polls. As far as I'm concerned, I can't believe that uh, the polls can be, you know, that, that can be confirmed by the, by the real, by the real election. What I see, nevertheless, is that Macron uh, could be the, the perfect operator to break up the Socialist Party. Because if he does well, uh, as it's already the case, most of the officials of the, so of the dying Socialist Party will join him, uh, therefore admitting publicly that they are no longer socialist, and, uh, and the party will break up. And that would be good news. <laughs> All right. Okay. I, yeah, I think we're done. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Thank you, Thank you for you. That was really interesting. You guys must be exhausted after speaking <laughs> no, in no, English. No, 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 no. <laughs> lunch? Anyone want to give you lunch? You'll go. Yeah. Uh, lunch?